Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, spring Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. Mikey, where are you? Hi, you can't see me. My invisibility cloak is on. Oh, Mikey, stop drawing pentagrams on all the doors. The Cavern of Sorrow. It's the fantasy game that's sweeping the country, the Cavern of Sorrow. Learn about our exciting history and have fun, too. I'm a holy warrior on a quest. I'll kill you if you don't believe like I do. You can't beat me, stupid. I'm invisible. I got invisibility seeing glasses, dumbass. Lord Zad the wizard gave them to me. Remember our adventure at Gash Canyon? The Cavern of Sorrow. Gather ye friends and embark on historical adventures. I'll cut your head off with my sword. Oh, no, you won't. I have a metal neck given to me by Gorath of Bakdar. I got him when we traveled to the nether regions of Gorthback. There I had eight wives, 47 kids, and other concerns. The Cavern of Sorrow! It's not just a game. It's a secret society of special friends. Will you find the Cavern of Sorrow, or will it find you? The Cavern of Sorrow! An ancient pastime just went cyber-optic. Mom, look, I'm playing with myself! Exorbio! Handheld gaming action is here. The Exorbio game system fits in the palm of your hand and provides hours of fun. Mom, look, I'm playing with myself! Once you discover the action-packed action of Exorbio, you won't be able to stop. Exorbio! Take your newfound addiction everywhere. The three-color screen is just like real life. Play games like Morning Missile Crisis. Free the hostages. One-Eyed Monster War. Lightsaber struggle. Zip. Squirt. Pocket pull. Mortal sand and tonsil hockey. But be careful, you might go blind. Mom, I'm out of batteries and my arm aches. Or link up your Exorbios for private sword fight battles. I wonder if Dad still does it. Exorbio, let the games commence. Exorbio. Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of the Halloween special. This first story is called The Book of the Ravenous, and it's written by William Buckley. I think calling it an obsession would have been an exaggeration. I'd have preferred the more acceptable term hobby to describe my collecting of old cookbooks. Yes, it was a hobby, and we all need hobbies, you know. Something to pass the time between lunch and dinner, work and sleep, birth and death, my hobby never consumed the house or anything like that, with the great dust, dusty tomes snaking their way upwards until they eclipsed the sun. My wife made sure the book stayed in my study and nowhere else. Unless, of course, I planned on using them, in which case they were granted access to the cupboards in the kitchen. You could imagine that, when most of my books were for the 19th century aristocrats or for people working around the world, the World War II rationing system, Few of my cookbooks ever saw my house beyond the dimly lit study, where the dust mites did not so much as dance under the languid light as they did drift stagnantly like clouds making their way across the sky. I found this arrangement agreeable, since it kept me on the right side of the oh-so-fine line of all that all collectors walk, 
the line that separates a collection from a hoard. So I spent my nights sequestered away in the study, with its deep green carpet and custard yellow walls. The room was certainly an eyesore, but the shelves of cookbooks covered most of the wallpaper, and the dull light of the study meant that it was easy to pretend the carpet wasn't such an unpleasant color. The obligation was, however, that if I spent my nights flicking through the mottled pages of old cookbooks, I had to use some of my knowledge to put dinner on the table every night. I wasn't a master chef, but I knew which end of the knife was sharp and was happy to make meals for our little family of three. The night before I found the book, I was ladling great heaps of risotto into our bowls while my wife impatiently tapped her cherry-red fingernails on the dining table. I always thought that her having such bright, obnoxiously colored nails was unsightly, especially since my wife typically dressed in browns and beige, but perhaps that was the point. Her nails were like a release from the blandness that her attire was. Hunter sat with his head resting on the table, no doubt itching to finish dinner and run back up into his room to play video games and do whatever else it is that a 13-year-old boy does when he's alone. I suppose in another family, Hunter would have been reprimanded for being so solitary, but every un everyone in this household spent most of their time alone, so he was simply following suit. We began to eat, wordlessly, but as the oppressive silence grew thicker, we started trading pieces of small talk to alleviate some of the awkwardness. So, honey, I was looking at the calendar and realized that Hunter's science camp starts the day I go visit the Ice Queen. My wife and I both decided the best label for her mother would be the Ice Queen. I think that says all you need to know about her character. You sure you'll be okay with the house all to yourself? I scoffed. Somehow I think I'll manage. She knew I wasn't going with her. The rule we established was that I only tag along with my wife every second time we receive summons from the Ice Castle. Every other time, my job as a librarian keeps me too busy to come see her. With that, the spell of silence was broken, and we all began chatting about school, work, and ordinary family bullshit. I laugh now, thinking about how this was the last night, which I was truly sane. It was the night before I discovered my crown jewel. My job as a librarian was an enjoyable one. While my library, like most, had a stunted and unloved cookbook section, occasionally I'd ask to make the three-hour drive up to the gargantuan storage facility where all the older books in the regional library's collection were held, to pick up books for people who requested them, and return those that had been sent out previously. It was tedious to be sure, but I was allowed the entire day for such a task, and I regaled in the ancient books found there. It was in this place my love for cookbooks was born even if I necessarily couldn't take any of these books from my keeping. Feeling the dusty film on their pages, the stains left from previous uses, each one like its own artifact, forever passed down, forever preserved within the bound leather tomes. I fell, fell in love with these recipes and the context from which they came, from 18th century housewives to, dying, to the dying breed of 20th century royal families. Every recipe was tailored for someone. But while there wasn't a single book in my collection that I wasn't in love with, some books were more loved than others. On this particular day, I found the book that would top all the others. My one true love, my crown jewel. Every collector has a crown jewel, a typically rare and special article of whatever item it is they like to collect. It takes a while, and some collectors' crown, crown jewels are better than others, but if one persists at their hobby long enough, they're bound to find the one edition of their collection that makes it special. 
I had finished all the work I was supposed to in the facility, and I spent the rest of the day wandering amongst the labyrinth of ancient shelves creaking under the weight of ancient books. I ran my hand along their spines, noticing how, just like the pages themselves, the exterior of these books were also coated in a fine layer of dust. Not all these books were cookbooks, but every one told an engrossing story. Maps of old prospector towns, letters sent between nobles, I was lost in the sea of times long gone. While wandering through the aisles, drifting deeper than I ever had before, I found a large pile of books that had toppled from their shelf, spilling all over the floor. It was as though the shelf had violently vomited all these musty books from itself, leaving them in disarray. As a librarian, it was my duty to stuff these books back in their shelf. I was unfamiliar with what order they were placed in, so I just used my best judgment. The pile of books seemed to be unending, and the work quickly grew. Grew monotonous. What broke the monotony was the book that lay at the very bottom of the pile, being smothered by all the others. A leather-bound tome, with its cover faded and wrinkled, but still intricately decorated, in that extravagant Old English font. The title read, The Book of the Ravenous, Dishes to Sate Any Appetite. The words within were a more standard Georgian font, placing it around the 19th century. The pages were Pollock painting of brown and maroon smears and spudges, molding on the page like some sort of fungus or lichen. At first, I skimmed the yellow pages. The book was only of mild interest. Only when I focused on the ingredient of a particular page did I realize the uniqueness of the book. One clove of garlic, one teaspoon salt, half teaspoon pepper, three potatoes, one cup of peas, and one tongue. I felt fear squirming in my stomach like a black worm tying itself into knots. Skimming through the pages, more body parts appeared. Legs, thighs, ribs. There was no author, no date of publication, no introduction. Just pages and pages of recipes, each one detailing another way to cook a human body part. Suddenly, the strangely colored stains plastered on every page made more sense. What kind of library would have this book in its database? I searched for a barcode or some sort of marker that showed the library owned it and found none. The book was not actually in the library system. Had it been left here on purpose? Buried under all these books? Such a morbid book frightened me to no end to be sure, but to think that it was so unique, so strange, and far too authentically bound to be some kind of a gag book. I couldn't resist it. The woman at the front desk paid me no mind as I left the storage facility, my crown jewel nestled safely within my jacket. I stared at the slab of meat on the cutting board. It glistened under the kitchen, kitchen's pendulum lights. I stared at the veins of fat that carved their way through the flesh. I wanted to touch it, to press my thumb in it and watch the wet indent slowly rise or remain pushed in. Grabbing my knife, I began to cut the beef. My afternoon was spent reading my latest find. Most pieces of flesh had at least one page dedicated to them, though certain pieces, such as the liver or heart, frequented as the star of a dish. As I cut the beef, the images conjured up from that book hung about me, haunting me like phantoms. Filleting the inner thigh, deboning the fingers, skinning the forearm. It was as though these images were embedded into my brain with a soldering iron. It was stir-fry that night. I had mixed in with the noodles and beef, lots of vibrant vegetables that seemed to glow as the steam rose off them. I generously spooned at least five different spices into the dish. Despite my best efforts, the meal still seemed disappointing. The noodles became claggy paste in my mouth, and the vegetables felt rubbery and bland. Sorry, guys, this wasn't one of my greatest hits, I said, trying to speak over their chewing sounds. Ugh. 
I don't know what you're talking about, honey. This is great. Don't you like it, Hunter? She gestured to him with those red fingernails, cherry red like blood, blood running in rivulets across the white kitchen bench, creating new red veins to mingle with the marble's gray ones. Blood pooling at the bench's edge, first trickling, then spilling, then nearly rushing over, landing on the tiles with a series of sickening splatters like an overflow of rainwater rushing from a gutter. Blood filling the valleys between the white kitchen tiles as though they were veins in their own right, and the house was being granted new life. Blood everywhere. Honey, I looked up to find my wife and child staring at me like I just had a heart attack at the table. Oh, I'm sorry, what did you say? I asked how work was. Oh, yeah, work was fine. Got to go up to that big storage place again today. You find any good reads? No, nothing out of the ordinary. The distaste in my cooking only grew. As long as I focused on it and nothing else, my mind wouldn't wander back to these morbid thoughts. Despite my wife's constant protestations and my son's absent-minded nodding, I believed the quality of my cooking to be at a decline. There was also something else I had noticed, a desire welling up within me. I didn't entertain the thought of these desires. I pushed them far, far back. I sequestered them away where they couldn't escape. Yet every day, the nagging at the back of my head continued like a second heartbeat. I could hear the book calling. Every night I would read more recipes. It became a compulsion. Other cookbooks, which had been as entertaining as a fantasy novel for me, became like reading chemistry textbooks. I tried not going into my study at all, but I was drawn there, drawn into the gloomy depths of that room, as though the study and I were bound by a string. I was in my study the night before my wife went to the ice castle and hunted a science camp. The current recipe had me engrossed. Remove bicep from upper arm, stopping where the shoulder meets the collarbone, strip away with flaying knife and then skin. Place in a well-oiled pan with butter. Continue to cook until well-browned on both sides and butter has melted into the flesh. Serve with salt, pepper, and basil. I imagine the rivers of grease trickling down the browned flesh, the crackling of its surface, and the steam rising in great columns like thin, ghostly dancers. I saw the fine layer of salt and pepper coating the flesh like the film of dust on those old cookbooks. The leaves of basil, not a lot, only two or three, daintily sat atop the dish, completing its... I looked down. On the page of the recipe, four great wet splotches had splattered on the page. I checked the corners of my mouth. It was wet. That night, even after the hamburgers I had made for my family, I went to bed with a growling stomach. Hunter was already in the car, and my wife was searching for her keys. I was watching the TV, or rather, staring at it. I wanted to read more recipes, and the blur of pixels on the screen, whatever it was, was not enough to hold my attention. You sure you don't want to come with me? I'm being serious this time. I sighed and looked down at my feet, trying to appear conflicted. In truth, I was angry. I needed her to leave so I could keep reading. You haven't been yourself these past few days, or weeks for that matter. Are you sure everything's okay? Everything's fine, was my response. All right, I'll be back in a week, but Hunter's at camp for two. We'll have a whole week to ourselves. When you get back, I'll cook a grand feast, I exclaimed, throwing my hands in the air with melodramatic vigor. Okay, sweetie. I'm looking forward to it already. I'll send your regards to the Ice Queen. With that, we kissed, and she went to the door. Some part of me wanted to run to her, to kiss her one more time, and ask her to wait as I packed my bag so we could brave the Ice Queen together, but my legs were like cinder blocks. They weren't moving. The door shut, the car drove away, and I turned off the TV. I was left in a house absent of sound. The only noise came from my head. The book was calling. I could hear it. I was able to make one compromise with my possessive study. 
and even more possessive cookbook. Instead of reading by the lamp as usual and entombing myself in my room with no open curtains and no open doors, I read the book by the light of day. Time became fluid and the hours blurred together as I turned page after page and the sky grew darker and darker. I looked out the window. The sky was black, which was good considering it was 3 a.m. I didn't remember turning on the lamp to read, but then again I didn't remember getting onto the page about marinating ribs either. I turned the page, yawning as I... Hold on. I looked out the window once more. The sky wasn't just black, it was a bizzle. No moon, no stars, no cloud, pitch black, a void. Then I heard a bang. What was that? Another bang. Downstairs, I walked out of the study and started and stared down the flight of steps. There was a faint, wavering light and another banging noise. It was coming from the kitchen, so I made my way down the stairs as stealthily as possible and poked my head from behind the wall near the landing. The kitchen was right before me, and there it was again. Bang. There was a figure in the kitchen. It was hard to see who it was exactly. The kitchen had three pendulum lights, though only one was on, and it was swinging in great broad arcs much like the item for which it was named. The figure's shape kept dancing in and out of the shadows as the light swung, being the only illuminating thing in the bottom story of the house. Another bang. I only needed to see it for a few seconds to understand its shape. Bang. To understand the source of the banging. Bang. To understand the figure in the kitchen was not human. It had the buckled hind legs of a goat, and its brown hair started at the hooves and didn't stop until it covered its head. The head, speaking of which, was slim and serious, but a goat's head nonetheless, with those muddy yellow eyes and thin, sinewy horns. The only part of the figure's body that resembled the human's besides the overall body shape was the goat creature's strong, burly arms, the large hands it had wielding the cleaver, the cleaver that was cutting into a detached arm, making the banging noise. It turned and stared at me with its inhuman eyes. A dream, I thought, only a dream. It may very well have been a dream, but by no means an ordinary one. In a dream such as this, with the cleaver-wielding goat man attacking an arm, the point where he makes eye contact with you is the point where he screams or laughs maniacally, jolting you from your dream. Instead, the creature gestured, gestured to a stool in front of the marble island with his bloody cleaver, and I cautiously took a seat. The banging continued, though the light seemed to have steadied. The goat man wordlessly continued to cleave through flesh and bone, leaving a clean slice and creating that resounding bang on the chopping board. Just as I had gotten used to the steady bangs on the cleaver, a new sound caught my attention. Behind the goat creature attached to the wall was a cupboard. It was enwreathed in chains and adorned with a rusty padlock. It was here the sound of dripping blood emanated. The blood ran down the crevice between the cupboard's doors and splattered onto the bench from its bottom. Now I could hear muffled bumping and shuffling from the cupboard as its doors bulged and struggled against the chains. I looked back at the goat creature who was staring at me once more. His eyes seemed to say, are you going to pay attention now? I stared at the arm as he continued to cleave it. The arm was still twitching fingers with cherry red nails. My mouth began to pool with a liquid. It wasn't blood or some mysterious black bile as one would expect in a dream like this, but saliva. Beyond all the restraint I could muster, I licked my lips. Now as I looked around my benighted house, I saw I wasn't alone. In the shadows of the dining room and near the landing of the stairs, and just about every place that surrounded the kitchen in total blackness, there were eyes, glowing yellow eyes, 
I could hear them whispering, muttering to one another. I realized the light from the single globe above was slowly shrinking, and the eyes in the blackness were growing in number. The arm was cleaved into several thick slices, and the goat creature carried them to the oven. I followed him and found myself next to him, and in front of the glowing, the growing red puddle below the cupboard as he shoveled the slices in. Who are they? I whispered. His eyes looked like they were a pool frozen mid-ripple. They are the ravenous. They're here to test you. Now the goat man was gone, and the pendulum light had moved to shine a slim ray of light over me, the, the dripping cupboard and the puddle beneath it. The whispering was growing more hurried now, and I found myself surrounded by a plethora of flickering yellow eyes. I stared into the puddle of blood. My skin was as black as the shadows overwhelming my house, and my eyes glowed a languid yellow light. The light of the ravenous. The light I used to read in my study. For once, this dream followed tradition and ended with me releasing an ear-splitting scream, terrified at my own reflection. I awoke to find my head resting on the book, which was most likely the occult equivalent to falling asleep near a nuclear reactor. The window revealed that it was that it truly was night now, and amid the, gent the gentle twinking, twinkling stars, the moon was a crescent, a closing eye, blinking itself, blinding itself to the events of the night. What do you want from me? I spoke aloud, grasping the book with both hands. Test me? How the hell do you expect me to do this stuff, huh? My voice was trembling. I was truly growing angry with the book's silence. I stared at its cover, at the snakes and ferns and gargoyles that were carved into the leather, lending the book its beautiful, intricate look. I slammed the book on the table. Huh? My rage was interrupted by a jarring pound at the door. I glanced at the study's doorway, then back to the book. The door was pounded on once more. I opened the door to find a scruffy man under three layers of clothing. With his long, straw-like hair somewhere matted, somewhat matted to the stubble on his face. With his every breath, he released a cloud of white frost. Hey man, sorry to bug you. He scratched the back of his head, which was covered by a navy blue beanie. No trouble, I was up anyway. I nervously mirrored the man, scratching the back of my head. I just ran out of phone battery and my charger's broken. Could I please charge it till it gets till it gets back on? I really need to call somebody. I smiled. Yeah, sure, go ahead, come on in. He entered the house and took the seat I offered him in the lounge room. Look, it's super cold out there. Why don't you wait a bit longer so your phone can charge some more and I'll make you a cup of coffee. His opal eyes lit up and his grin revealed a set of teeth so white and straight and perfect they could have been carved from marble, from the marble in my kitchen bench. Holy crap, man, thanks, but I don't want to intrude on you and I'm guessing your wife and kids. How'd you figure I have those? Well, you know, man, it's a pretty big house. I laughed. All right, I have a wife and kid, but they're both out of town, so you can stay for a cup of coffee. It don't matter. I could see the discomfort in the man's eyes. He wanted nothing more than to grab his still uncharged phone from my hand and bolt for the door. But alas, with the only excuse he could think of being disarmed, he was socially, socially obliged to accept the coffee. In his effort to be polite, he may have just sealed his fate. I stared at the knife in the kitchen as the coffee brewed. I could end it all here. If this man goes on his way, I'd still be tormented. But if I just ended myself, I'd be free. My stomach protested this with a mournful growl. I couldn't remember the last time I had eaten a good meal, one that truly satisfied me. I made my way into the backyard, through the screen door in the kitchen, and fumbled my way along the exterior wall. My foot bumped into the toolbox, my hands trembling, and not just from the cold. I opened the box and grabbed the hammer that lay amid the miscellaneous collection of screws and nuts. 
Tucking the handle into my pants and covering the rest with my shirt, I entered as the coffee was ready to be poured. The man was standing in the kitchen, staring directly at the hammer-shaped outline behind my shirt. Listen, man, I really appreciate you letting me charge my phone, but I need to go. I think my phone's charged enough anyway. Uh, If you could just pass it here and let me get out of here. Sure, I said, trying to manage the friendliest tone I could. I took the phone off the charger, which I had placed in the socket next to the coffee machine. I also placed the hammer on the bench, trying to make it look as though it had some other purpose for being inside, beside what we both knew its intent was. I held the phone out to him. Here you go. Could you just put it on the bench, please? Now I was growing impatient, though I displayed this feeling as anger. You come into my home, ask me to perform a service, rudely deny the beverage I made for you, and now you choose to act like I'm some sort of a psycho? Dude, you came from your backyard with a hammer, and you smell like you haven't washed in days. Give me my goddamn phone, and I'll leave. I threw it on the floor. Nimbly, he bent to grab it, misjudging the distance between us and the speed at which I could swing the hammer. Steel met bone with a sickening crunch. Oh my god. Honey, this is incredible, she exclaimed, happily chewing down the ribs I had prepared, pulling long, sinewy strands of flesh off the bone. It just melts in your mouth. I will admit it's the first dish I've been pleased with in weeks. She put her hand on mine. That's really good, sweetie. I was beginning to get worried. We continued to eat, neither of us mentioning the sheer amount of grease glistening on the meat, trickling off its surface as we sunk our teeth into it. What kind of meat is this? Hey, uh, how's the ice queen doing? She rolled her eyes. Don't get me started. We continued to eat in silence until both of us were filled to the brim. Hey, you want to see the book I got this recipe from? Her her eyes lit up, lit up with excitement. Yeah, bring it down. I ran up the stairs and got the book. I could feel it pulse in my hands, radiating a dull warmth. It was pleased. I had flipped to the page I had used and showed her the method. Remove entrails and miscellaneous viscera through the abdominal incision. Turn the corpse over and use a chisel or blunt object to dislodge ribcage from spine. Extract the ribs individually or all at once through an incision and douse in marinade prepared earlier. You'll find human ribs need far less time to cook than other animal variants, so only place in the oven for... She read the page in awe, beginning to laugh. Oh my god, I didn't realize you got... Into practical jokes since I left. What's it called? The Book of the Ravenous? Ha! She laughed harder before looking up at me. I wasn't laughing. Only faintly, patiently smiling. The laughing faltered as she read on. This is gruesome, you know, even for a joke book, she stopped. As she looked back at me, I saw the comprehension in her eyes. It was faint, but present. I heard the gulp. Please tell me this This is... She flipped to the next page, and then to the next, and then the next, and then the next... I saw it before she did. From the corner of her mouth, the single, long, silvery strand of saliva caught the sunlight as it sluggishly began to make its way to the yellowed page of the book. As she looked up, the only emotion in her eyes was fear, and I heard her stomach growl. The car came to a screeching halt, disrupting the quaint and quiet atmosphere of the suburb. I really liked Jack, but his mother couldn't drive for shit. Here you go, honey. Tell your mom I said hi. I smiled hopping out of the door. Thanks, Mrs. Danton. I'll see you soon, Jack. We waved, and then I shut the car door, watching the vehicle raucously barrel down the peaceful street once more. As I entered the house, I found it completely absent of light, natural or otherwise. Closing the door, I followed the sounds of the wet, vigorous chewing. There was my mother in the kitchen. 
the most inelegant I had ever seen her gorging herself over a plate of grease-doused meat. Hey, Mom. My voice was timid and cautious. All I got was, as a response was a single glance as she ripped another great chunk of flesh off a rather large bone. I could hear the grease trickle from her mouth onto the plate, where it was beginning to form a puddle in the color of dirty dishwasher water. As I went to the sink to get a drink, I noticed all the cleaning supplies usually kept under the sink were in disarray all over the counter. The cupboard under the sink was padlocked and contained an incredibly faint rasping sound as though there was someone within struggling for breath. Hunter, my boy, I turned, trembling and slack-jawed, only just noticing the thin stream of blood trickling from the cupboard. My father was completely enshrouded in the benighted house's shadow. I could have sworn his eyes were glowing yellow. Come and sit down, Hunter. Eat something while you tell us about science camp. After two weeks away from my cooking, you must be ravenous. Huh. Well, that made me hungry. What about you guys? I'm going to take a quick break and get something to eat. <laughs> Hi, what are you afraid of? Heights? Flying? Polio? Whatever your fear, it's time to face it. Hi, I'm Darius Fontaine, the creator of Inversion Therapy. For years, we've helped patients get past their deepest and darkest fears and get on with their lives. Just listen to this. I, I was having really dark thoughts. I, I wanted to sleep with my mother. Now that I've done it, I don't want to anymore. Incredible! But, you know, it works. That's inversion therapy. Fear it, face it, do it, conquer it! Got it? Just listen again. Yeah, okay. I was terrified of my children being harmed, so I stabbed them. Didn't hurt me that much. Yeah, now I'm not afraid of anything. That's another life saved! <laughs> Inversion therapy works! I know. When you take your fear head on, then it's time to move on. I'm Darius Fontaine. Call me today. I'll change your life. Promise. Call 1-866-FACE-FEAR. Hello? Uh, Mom, it's me. Jimmy! How great to hear from you! How are you? Not good, Mom. I killed a man drunk driving. I need bail money bad. Uh, can you, uh, remortgage the house? Every day is Mother's Day. San Andreas Telephone, for those difficult conversations. Alright, I'm back from snack time. This next one is called I Found a Letter from My Stalker, and it's by the Minister of Owls. I saw you today. It was your birthday, but you didn't see me. You hardly ever do these days. Your skin looks so nice and healthy in your eyes. They were the most beautiful I'd ever seen them. You've grown so much. I remember how different you used to look when you were younger. I remember the day I first met you. It was four years ago. I was sitting at my desk with my head down, listening to the teacher rattling off names for attendance. The teacher called out a name that I didn't recognize, and a stranger's voice answered behind me. Was there a new student? The teacher didn't pause for a second, just continued calling out name after name. I turned my head to where the voice had come from. I saw you, a pale thing, so thin, your eyes so red, at the seat that should have been empty. I saw the fireflies flying around you, flickering, dozens of them, never straying far from you. I saw them going through you and coming out through your skin like you were a mist, at least only to them. Can you believe I thought you were a ghost? Nobody else seemed to acknowledge the new stranger sitting at the back of the class. Class after class, hour after hour passed as I waited for something to happen, for someone to notice you, for you to leave, for you to let out a ghoulish scream and claw at me like in a horror movie that I was certain I was in, but nothing happened. 
Teachers came and went. My classmates laughed and slept, and you just sat there. The bell rang for recess. The other kids ran to their mundanities of their lives, leaving me and you together in the empty classroom. You stood up and pulled a chair from the desk next to you, making it face your desk. You turned your head to me and spoke. Well, you're slow today. Come on, ask me your questions. I don't know why I didn't run away screaming at that moment. Probably would have turned out better for me in the long run, but let's not speculate. I guess at that point in my life, I was pretty lonely. I figured there was only a 50-50 chance you'd eat me, and the other 50 was that someone wanted to talk with me. Kid priorities don't make much sense to me either these days. So I went along with the flow. I walked over to your desk, sat down on the chair you pulled out for me, and asked my question. What were you? You told me you didn't know. You said that once you were a child, just like me, with parents and friends, you used to go to the same schools as me. Then one day, one ordinary day when you were ten, you woke up, and you were like this, covered in fireflies, and nobody could remember you the moment they concentrated on anything else. Nobody, not even your parents. You told me of you told me of how I'd notice you every day, how I'd think of you until recess every day, how I'd come to you every day, how we would talk every day, and how we would meet for the first time every day for the last three years, and how I'd forget the instant I walked out of the room. How everybody would forget you, how the fireflies would make them. How for the last three years, years you'd been alone. Your story was very hard to believe, so I didn't. I asked what reality prank show I was on, and you looked unimpressed, and asked me to continue telling my story. I was caught off guard by the non-sequitur. You said last time I was here I was telling you a story, a horror story about a haunted house. As you detailed the story, goosebumps prickled my skin. It was a story I'd been making up in my head, a story I hadn't told anybody yet. At that moment, a million reactions were open to me, all simultaneously adequate and inadequate, but the only thing that seemed proper was to finish the story for you, so I did. Halfway through, you interrupted me to ask if my mother had recovered from her sickness yet. I had to shake my head, a bit ashamed at the fact that I'd share this private matter to a stranger. The story ended a few minutes before recess. The next class was in another room. You told me to go. Your steadiness took me aback. You seemed so accepting of your fate, like you'd already gotten used to the idea of being forgotten forever. I was a kid back then, and I wasn't a particularly smart kid, and I was probably on the onset of a crush, so you can excuse what I did next as an example of my childhood stupidity. I grabbed my scissors, pressed it against my arm skin, and dug in. As it drew blood, I pushed it forwards till the cut formed the shape I wanted. Letter by letter, I carved your name into my arm. Just so you know, I don't regret that. Don't get me wrong, kid power might have made me do it, but it sure as hell didn't make the pain go away. It was one of the most painful experiences of my life. Just wait, you little shit. It gets a lot worse. Ha! <laughs> Fucker. But even then, as a kid, I thought what was happening to you was unfair. I remember how your eyes looked when you saw that. The confusion. How strange it was for you that anybody would want to remember. I remember that. That looked so clearly. When I woke up the next day and saw your name on my arm, I remembered you. I didn't forget. That day, for the first time, we had a conversation that wasn't so one-sided. You said nobody had ever done anything like that before and suggested I might have a mental illness. I won't deny it. That drew a little blood. As we talked, a creeping thought came into my head. Did you prefer it when I didn't remember? That night, I was sitting up on my bed, staring at your name on my arm and wondering if I should cover it up so I couldn't see it and give you back your privacy when I heard a crash. 
I looked up to see my bedroom window shattered and a dirty rock on my floor. I looked out of the cracked window to see a dark figure on my lawn. You were outside yelling about how we should hang out. It took me a while to get used to how bad you were at talking to people. Years without practice made you quite a bit rusty. That was alright, we had plenty of time. For the next two years, we spent most of our free time together. Most of the time, we talked. You'd tell me an aspect of your life and how you lived. You still stayed in your old house. Your parents never noticed the food that had gone missing and never noticed the extra room or that you'd stolen the extra keys. One night, I confided in you that I was beginning to think you were part of my imagination, like Fight Club. After all, what could you do to tell me that I couldn't do to myself? What could you do to me that I couldn't do to myself? You spent the next month or so trying to leave bite marks on my ear or neck to prove a point. I still have a few scars on my ear, so I guess you did. Looking back, I could see the warning signs even then. Your skin seemed to get worse and worse, paler and paler, and you'd rubbed your eyes raw. It was in winter we had our wake-up call. The morning began like any other. I woke up, brushed my teeth, and started searching for clothes to wear. It was a winter morning and my room was dark, so I didn't see your name on my arm. The cold sent shivers through my body and pulled out. I pulled out a long sleeve jacket. A small bell rang in my head. Don't you usually roll your sleeves up? Yeah, and why did I? That was annoying. I finished tidying up and headed to school. On the school bus, I felt oddly content, like something I'd been worried about had just disappeared. I walked up the school stairs, down the hall, through my classroom door, and sat there at my desk. The same feeling of a burden forgotten hounded my mind. But what was I forgetting? When recess came, I just sat at my desk while my classmates ran out. It felt like a ritual, but I didn't know what for. I was contemplating just walking out to join them when I heard it. It was something small in the wind, like a whisper, but it came over and over, incessant. It sounded like my name. I knew this was strange, that this was worth my attention, but I felt oddly calm. Everything would be alright. Everything would be fine. Just ignore it. So I sat there at my desk, my mind a war zone between two conflicting, contradictory voices, when I felt a force tugging on my sleeve. The moment I noticed this, my jacket sleeve tore open. I saw your name on my arm. And then I saw your hand that had ripped my jacket open. You'd been yelling at me for over 20 minutes. I think that was the moment we realized how on edge our friendship really was, one accident away from being completely erased. We spent most of the next year in the town library together, trying to find out what the fireflies were. It wasn't really a problem for me. Because of my mother's treatment, my family couldn't afford to go on any trips, and our house didn't have heating anymore, so I was happy to spend my time with you. Trying to find information was a puzzle in and of itself. After all, how would I read about people I couldn't remember, and how would you find out who was special when nobody could even remember enough about them to write them down? We found our old family trees and records. Individually, we'd write down the names of everybody in the book on two lists, and then we would compare. The names I hadn't remembered to write down, but you had, would become the focus. They were the names who were, who were under the curse of the fireflies. We compiled a list of suspicious books, books we thought could help us because they were written by or were about the people we were searching for. I read the books with the list of names side by side, re reading it again for every page for the what? Reading it again for every page of the book. You scoured the internet on the library computers on the lookout for articles about people. Our our search would lead us to the first glimpses we got of what was really happening to you. It was late at night when you found the picture. I was a bit drowsy at the time and almost about to nod off when I heard a sharp intake of breath. I turned to see you standing up, pointing at the screen. 
I didn't see anything. Well, I didn't see anything noteworthy. On the screen was a picture of a clearing somewhere in the woods. You held up your piece of paper where you'd marked out two names. Susie Appleby Reagan, 13, and Terry Appleby Reagan, 12, siblings. For a moment, I saw the paper and the screen side by side. And then I saw it. Two figures emerging from the woods towards the camera. They were almost humanoid with the exception of their limbs which stretched in nightmarish proportions. Their blank white skin was that of pure albino and looked more like tree bark than anything you expect to find on a mammal. A cloud of fireflies surrounded the duo. The shorter one looked emaciated. I could see their ribcage, around which their... Oh God, their eyes were so small and red. The taller one with its white hair didn't look alive anymore. There were little more than skin. They were little more than skin wrapped around a skeleton, and fireflies swarmed out of the pair's empty eye sockets. Both reached for the cameraman. I looked at the article surrounding the picture. It was a blog posted by a hiker twenty years after the last mention of the two kids. The picture was a mystery to the cameraman as well. He'd been wanting to go to the woods pictured for a while now, but he never actually remembered going there. The picture had just appeared on his camera one day out of the blue. For a moment, I looked at your face, your thin, pale face with those red-veined eyes. Would that be you, when my scar faded? Just a walking horror I'd glimpse and then forget. We worked through our reading list at a much faster pace, starting from that moment. Maybe we should have gone slower. At least every book, every website we'd left untouched promised hope. The books that we finished and tossed aside promised nothing, but the clearing in the woods is one's future. As we tossed aside a lot of books, I believed I tore through three-fourths of my reading list before I stumbled across the journal. Oh God, that horrible, horrible journal. The journal used to belong to a mental patient named Joey, who claimed to be a serial killer. He was locked up in an asylum when the police discovered his supposed victims never existed. He was diagnosed, quote-unquote, with a need for attention, and shoved away. They should have electrocuted him. They should have fried him until his flesh melted away and his hair burned. In his journal, he talked about how he carried out his killings. He knew things, bizarre and deserving things, disturbing things that nobody else knew. He knew of strange creatures that lived in the woods. Of them, his favorites were the fireflies. I'm not going to tell you how he summoned these things. I trust you. I trust you more than anybody, but a thing like this belongs to the ground more than it ever will to a human mind. In the end, it's sufficient to know that these things were not, indeed, fireflies. Joey would start his ritual by taking a child, any child, anyone he pleased. He could take them at any time, in the dead of the night, from their own homes or in broad daylight, from their front yard. It didn't matter if he was seen. He'd taken them to his house and dragged them inside, and usually an Amber Alert would come up at that point. He didn't care. Like I said, it wouldn't matter soon. He'd drag them to a special room in his house, and here the fireflies would come and latch onto them. Now, nobody was searching for the kids. Not the police, not the parents, nobody. From then on, he could do whatever he wanted to the kid. He'd get bored of them after a day or two, after the child had broken, and at that point, he'd dispose of them. Hacksaw, kitchen knife, anything would work. He detailed a large pit of bodies that he'd kept in the woods, and it was swarming with bugs. One day, I guess he got bored of that too. So he went right to the police station and turned himself in. Not on account of the guilt, no. He just wanted somebody to know about the stuff he was doing. He wanted recognition. Sick bastard. Oh, don't get the wrong idea. He never stopped killing kids. The asylum doors didn't stop him from doing what he liked. It just made him improvise. He made a new way. 
He modified the flies so they could survive without a host, just in a dormant state. When a child would approach the swarm, it would latch on and begin its effect. Over the years, the child would warp horribly into the things we saw in the woods. I wish I could hate him in peace. I wish I could say the world owed him nothing, but that wouldn't be true. He detailed a way out on the final page. There was an exact explanation on how to get rid of the fireflies. You must have seen something in my face because at that moment you asked if I had found anything. I said no when I closed the book. A few minutes later, you shut down the computer. You picked up the last book and went through it yourself. When you reached the end cover, you tossed it aside. I asked what we should do now, and you said it was all right. I could go home. We'd talk about it in the morning. I stood up and walked past the shelves of books. I headed for the library entrance, but stopped right outside the door and waited. I waited until I heard the sniffling sounds. I sneaked back to our table where you were quietly sobbing. You had your head in your hands. I sat back down as you raised your eyes to me. You said you wished you'd never met me, how happy you were when you had nothing to lose, and how I'd ruined your life. You'd never really gotten better at talking people, talking to people. That was the worst love confession I'd ever heard. I remember how we kissed that night. I remember how your hands gripped my hair, but I remember that kiss. I wish it could have just been a kiss. I'm sorry I ruined that moment when my arms were around you. I was close enough to steal a firefly without you noticing. I remember holding the firefly in my hand. I remember how it struggled until it didn't, until it was part of me. The fireflies shifted. They came over to me and left you. I remember the familiar look in your eye, the confusion. I never wanted to see that confusion in your eyes again. You deserved to be loved, and you deserved to know that, and you deserved to know that. I wasn't really living anyway. You reached for me. I pulled away as the last light of recognition faded from your eyes, and then you were just staring at a stranger, walking away into a crowd of strangers, and that was a year ago. You've gotten so much better since then. You have so many friends now, so many people at your birthday party. You also look so much healthier. I haven't been as fortunate. My skin's gotten a lot paler, and my eyes hurt all the time now. I couldn't go to school like you did all those years. I haven't wasted my time, though. I found Joey's pit. The bodies. There were so many bodies. There's a grave for those children now. Uh, without me around, my mom could afford surgery. She looked so happy. Just yesterday, I saw her playing with my baby brother. I saw you crying yesterday. You were with your friends laughing, and for a brief moment, your eyes met mine, and then they started watering. I think I'm going away. For good, I think. You're not going to be happy if I stick around, but I'm so happy I met you, even if you don't remember me. Well, goddamn, that one was kind of sad. Sounds like a big metaphor for fucking depression to me, but what do I know? Certainly nothing about being depressed. Not my department. But on that sad note, guys, thank you very much for tuning back in to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror Halloween Special. I am your host and narrator, spring Jack, as always, and if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so by going to Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. That is Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. Thank you guys very much. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for another episode of the Halloween special. But until then, stay spooky. (laughs) 